0: All right, everybody, you can remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. If you have your Bible or app, you can turn there or click there now. And the scripture will also be on the screen behind me. James 5, verse 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Amen. Well, before we get to the text this morning, I want to talk about sort of a, A big issue. Uh, As uh, everybody knows, the Supreme Court issued a ruling on Friday that reversed uh, Roe v. Wade. It's an outcome that people have been working towards and praying for for decades now. And uh, here's how I've been thinking about it. uh, I know we're probably all over the map and exactly what to think and feel about this and how do we approach it. But I, I think it's sort of akin to Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, that outlawed slavery in America, it's, it's historical. It's a historic moment and it's something that we should celebrate. But just as when Lincoln signed that proclamation, it, it ended, legally ended slavery in America, it didn't end the injustice. Regarding slavery and race in our country. It didn't end the the long-held beliefs and the scars that were there. It didn't end the the whole system of injustice that was in place. It would still be put in place. It took 150 years to get to the point that we are today. And we see that we still have a lot to unravel regarding that issue. And it's going to be the same with this decision. Uh, This moment is a huge step against the injustice of abortion. That's exactly what abortion is. It's an injustice, but we've got a long way to go even after this decision. And, and here's, I think is what we want to think about this morning. Here's what we don't want to happen in this moment. And I think if we are, it, it's possible that we can be in danger of this happening in the evangelical church. What we don't want to happen is we don't want to win a legal battle against an immoral and unjust law and yet lose the battle or the war for the hearts and minds of the people who are around us all while losing the attention and losing the focus and the sight of the voiceless lives that actually need to be protected. Because here's the deal. The goal isn't just for abortion to be made illegal. What we want to see is we want to see life that. God-breathed, God-imaged life preserved. That's what we want to see. So here's what we, we have to do. Here's what our goal, I think, has to be as believers, as Christians. Our goal must be to model and to serve others around us with the sacrificial love of Jesus. In such a way, to such an extent, that abortion becomes not only rare, but it becomes unthinkable. Because we read, we see through our, in our hearts and through sacrificial love and humility to other people around us, we, we see other people around us see how beautiful it is to live in sacrificial love. As you've seen over the weekend, uh, we're nowhere near an end to this issue. This milestone is a milestone, is just fresh fuel for the cultural fire that we're in. But, but I think this is important. I think, I think it's really important. We have to remember that our goal is not to win a culture war. I'm going to say that again. Our goal is not to win a culture war. As Christians, there's only one battle that we're concerned with, and Jesus already won that battle. He conquered sin and death and the satanic powers at the cross. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting until his enemies are made his footstool, and whenever that happens, he's going to return in complete victory to make all things right again, to, to dry every tear from every eye. In the meantime, we don't, as Christians, we don't win or lose through legal or political power. We don't win or lose through cultural power. We win. This is how Christians win. We win by following the example of Jesus and sacrificial love and grace. It's possible, this is what we don't want to see, it's possible that we could see a legal victory but still lose by not responding in this moment, in this moment, with the love and grace and humility of Jesus, the love and the grace and the humility of Jesus. here's what I'm saying is the heart and mind of Jesus must govern our response to this moment and our actions. The heart and mind of Jesus which is love and grace and humility must govern our response to this moment and our action. the way that we respond to the Supreme Court this Supreme Court decision, the way that you and I respond in person and online, must be, it has to be in love and grace and humility. We have to offer love to everyone on any side of this issue, even if we think they're wrong, even if we know they're wrong. We have to listen and consider the way that other people feel. Again, even if they are wrong, that's what Jesus does for us, isn't it? Even when we're wrong. Jesus listens and considers and welcomes us with open arms. He doesn't wink at sin, but he does at great cost to his own life, at his own cross of his own blood, he brings us in. We have to put ourselves in the, the shoes of the people around us and meet people where they are. That's what Jesus does. It's his heart for the people who are around us. We have to model the grace of Jesus to everyone. Grace is—just want to remind us—grace is unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. That's what we receive from the Father, and we have to show grace to people. Around us, and that is how people change. That's how we change. That's how our hearts change. When God shows grace to us in unmerited favor, that's what actually changes our hearts. So we must show grace to the women who have had to make the the difficult decision to abort a child, or who felt they had to make that decision. We we must show grace to those women who feel it's their only choice, their choice. Because that is what causes a heart to change. It's the only thing that causes a heart to change. And we must model the humility of Jesus to everyone. We can and we should celebrate the ending to an immoral law that led to the ending of millions of lives. But we must not. This is not what Christians ever do. We must not crow about it. That's not what Christians do. We must not rub it in the faces of people around us. That's not the way Jesus would respond. It's not the way he is responding. When we respond in that way, we place ourselves outside of Jesus's will. We have to let his heart and his mind motivate our actions. This is important. There's too much here to go into detail. I think in the coming weeks, Uh, We'll send out some resources to you guys via email and maybe podcasts and talk about, like, where do we go from here? How do we how do we act? How do we respond? Not just to the law, but how do we what do we do now? But this will be where the rubber meets the road for the American church. We have to reach out and care for those who feel that abortion is their only or their best option. We must offer. Abort- uh, adoption alternatives, foster care alternatives, absolutely. But we all also must seek to lift up parenting and families and help provide pathways for mothers and potential mothers to be able to care for their children. So here's the, the questions I want to leave as we, as we move on from this. Here's what I think we should be praying about and thinking about How can you be involved? Not just to post something online, but how can you be involved in caring for people in a practical, tangible way that helps them? Will you pray about how you can do that? Will you pray for our country as times, and they are going to get through this issue and others as they get more tumultuous? And... Will you pray for the church, the American church, and our church that will respond and act in a way that will show the beauty of Jesus? I'm going to pray real quick for that. Father, we do, as we prayed in this morning, we pray that you would help us to respond in grace and love and humility at this time. God, we do celebrate the ending of an immoral law. But God, we want to be a people who are about life and wholeness. And I pray that you would help us
1: individually,
0: as a church and the American Church, to respond in such a way that we promote life, that we reach people where they are. We model sacrificial love so that mothers and fathers can view parenting, family children and the sacrifice that there is involved as a great honor that comes from you. God, we pray that you not only would change this law in each state, but we pray that you would change hearts and minds. that you would use this moment that we are in as the church in America to draw all people to yourselves. For your glory and our joy, we pray. Amen. So, for the past three weeks, we've been uh, looking at prayer. This is our last week in our in our uh, prayer series. Uh, the month of July is going to be because people are going to be all over the map. It's going to be a lot of standalone sermons. The past three weeks, what we've looked at is that prayer is powerful. The first week, we saw that ambitious prayer produces. Great works. This is what Jesus says. He says, if you are my disciples, you will do my works. And not only my works will you do, but you'll do greater works than these. Ask me, ask me whatever you wish, he says, and I will do it for you. He says, you as my disciples, your legacy, your path, your calling is to be those who do my works who do the works that Jesus did, who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed. And he said, you'll do even greater works than these. And he was pointing to the fact that we'd be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to such an extent that we see hearts and lives and minds changed. The second week, we looked at the fact that abiding prayer produces or bears much fruit. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask me again, hear the... Whatever you like, whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, if you rest in me and let my heart and my mind begin to change your heart and your mind, you will find that whenever you ask anything that you wish, you know what he says? He says, maybe it'll happen for you, like just rolling dice and it might happen. He says, no, it shall be done for you. And then last week we look at the fact that believing prayer is answered. Jesus says that whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. He said before that, he said, believe in God. If you say to this mountain, be removed and cast in the sea, what, and do not doubt in your heart, it shall be done for you. If you believe, if you believe in God, if you believe, we taught last week, that God is a God who is both powerful and caring he is powerful enough to move the mountain but he is loving enough to move whatever your mountain is if you believe he will do whatever you ask now did you notice some see even in the, those synopsis did you notice some words and some phrases that were repeated there it said jesus kept saying pray he's asking looking for us to pray he says pray See, have you ever looked at the life of Jesus in one of the Gospels and see how often he prayed? He was the Son of God. He was one with the Father. He was one hundred percent God and one hundred percent man, and yet he was consistently, constantly pulling off to the side to pray, and he was urging his disciples. Pray and ask, and I will do it. Do you hear that word of the word? Ask. Jesus over and over again encourages his disciples and encourages us to ask. We talked about it last week. I think sometimes we don't ask because we don't believe and trust that he is both powerful and good enough to do whatever we ask. We don't ask because we don't study his word to know what his will is. We ask double minded. Not really trusting him and believing him, but he says, pray, ask. And then he says that, he says, believe, believe, have faith. Do you trust me is what he said. Do you trust me that I am good and powerful to do whatever you need? Jesus spent so much time looking for faith and whenever he would find it, he would commend it and reward it. And whenever he saw little faith or no faith, he would say, come on, guys, why do you not believe and trust in me? And if you do, he says, if you trust and pray and ask and believe, I tell you what will happen. I shall do it. It shall be done for you. And here's my hope for this series that we've been in. My hope is that this, these sermons have broadened your thoughts a little bit regarding prayer. I think, again, I think some of us, we pray. Like we, like I would shoot a basketball from anywhere in the court, but from particularly from here, just kind of hoping, just throwing it up and hoping it makes it in the net. Because by the sheer, by prob- course of probability, if I throw a basketball a hundred times, at least one of them is going to make it in there. And I think sometimes we pray like that. We don't pray to a guide to our father who's loving and caring for us. We pray to some void in the sky just hoping maybe it'll catch. And so I hope that it's inspired you. I hope it's broadened your thoughts for turning prayer. And I hope it's challenged you a little bit to think, like, what does it mean when Jesus says, ask me whatever you wish and it shall be done for you? That's something in some ways I can preach about, but you have to kind of wrestle that through yourself a little bit. Mostly, I hope that it's inspired faith in your soul. I hope it's inspired faith to see that your Father in heaven loves you and cares for you and is all-powerful. And if you will but ask him, he will answer. Does that mean he will do every single thing that we ask him to do? No, but he will answer those prayers. He won't leave you like a little child left alone hoping that mom may hear or dad may hear him he he will you will know that your heavenly father has heard you in responding even whenever you've asked amidst. even if you've asked wrongly unwisely according to our own limited understanding he will respond and answer you but what do we do with this powerful thing called prayer what do we do with prayer? Is it just so that we can live easier and better lives? Or are we supposed to take this thing that God has given us and Jesus says is powerful and will do amazing things, are we supposed to do something with it that pushes back the forces of darkness around us? And this is where, Robert, where the rubber meets the road in this series. Doctor, I want you to see, believer, I want you to see that Jesus, I think Jesus wants us to see that prayer is the great privilege of the church and prayer is the great ministry of the church. Some of you have asked me, some of you that aren't here have asked me, what is it that we should be doing as a church? And here's my answer. The great ministry of our church must be the ministry of prayer. We have to do a lot of things. James says, faith without works is dead. We have to do a lot of things. But the great ministry of the church and our church must be the ministry of prayer. Why? Because it is through prayer that we access the immeasurably great power of God. It's in prayer that we hear the Spirit lead us as to where we should put our ministry efforts. It's in prayer that we call for the mountains to move so that our ministry is fruitful and effective. It's through prayer that we meet with God and find that He's the one that does the work as we obey. Did you hear that? Whenever Jesus said? He says, when you pray, speak to this mountain and say be moved. And does he say, like, it will be through the force of your prayer or the force of your actions that mountain will move? He says, no, I shall do it. It shall be done for you. And in this passage that we're in this morning, James pictures this this prayer, this powerful work in ministry of prayer as the regular work of everybody who's a part of the church. James here pictures the, the local Christian community as being a place where the, the weak and the suffering and the sick, even those who are cheerful, come to access the mighty power of God. And it's all because of Jesus. James, more than any other book in the New Testament, references the words of jesus and this is jesus's invitation to all of us It is it's through jesus working through his people that we see this fulfilled james opens up he says is anyone among you suffering let him pray is anyone cheerful Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will even be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at his working, as it is working. This passage is the conclusion of James' letter to a church we don't know what church is to. To an unknown local church. And that what we do know is that church was experiencing very difficult trials. The people in that church were suffering because of their faith in Christ. And now, James is about to sign off the letter. He's about to close it out. And, and the, the cool thing that is here is that James' letter follows the, the pattern of a, of a traditional Greek letter. Now Whenever you get to the end of a traditional Greek letter, you would sign off by saying something like, I, I wish that you would have good health. That you would prosper and be in good health. Something like that. And here, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus... He follows that form. He signs off, but he changes the approach. He says this. He doesn't here offer a mere hope. I hope that you are in health and do well. He offers an invitation from Jesus. Did you hear that in the passage? He offers an invitation from Jesus. It's not, it wasn't a, a new teaching. He's just encouraging them, the church that he's writing to, to follow the practice that was the practice of the local churches at the time. He says, come to church. And go to Jesus. You, you, you hear the, the, the invitation there? He says, Is any among you suffering? Is anyone among you sick? Even, is anyone among you cheerful? Has anyone among you sinned so that you have sins to confess? Come. When he says, Are you struggling? Pray. He's offering the invitation that Jesus offers us over and over again. It's an open invitation to all people, wherever you are, whoever you are, however you are hurting, whatever you are done, come in. Come in and find help. That's what he's, that's what he's saying in the passage. The, the wording literally pictures the wording of help. He says find salvation. He's picturing salvation as wording. He's saying come in those who are broken and find wholeness. It's an invitation to everyone who's broken. But it's also a promise of help. This is what John Calvin said. He says James means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. And he says, this is what your gatherings should be like. Your gatherings should be like this. It should be where those who are hurting and suffering and sick and even cheerful and sinners come and hear the invitation of Jesus through each other, saying, come in and find wholeness and healing in Christ it's the heart of Jesus that James is sharing it's the ministry of Jesus this is this is how Jesus described himself and described his ministry he stood up and he said this in Matthew 11 he says come to me come to me all you who are rich and wealthy and give to my church Come, come to me, all you who have great leadership abilities and can gather men and women around you and organize great ministries. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are charismatic and entrepreneurs, and come to me. Come to me, all you who are self-starters and have it all together, come to me. Come to me, all you who are great parents and are raising great, awesome children who never disobey come to me. Come to me, all you who are show respect to the people around you, all come to me. Come to me, all you who look like you have it all together, come to me. Is that, is that what he said? What did Jesus say? Well, before we even get to what he said, why, if that's not what Jesus says, why do we feel that's the way we have to come here? Why do you feel us the way you have to come down? Why do we lean so hard away from weakness and brokenness and pretending like we're not sinners, like we have it together? Why do we come acting like we feel OK when we're actually physically or mentally or emotionally sick and broken? Why do we come together? and act like we'd have it together. When Jesus says this, he stood up and he says, this is how he's saying, this is how I think about myself. And this is how I describe my ministry. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. Do you ever feel like you're weary and heavy laden? Like you can't keep it all together like you're broken, like you're physically, emotionally sick, that your family's not as awesome as you think that it should be, that you're not as awesome as you think it is. And he says, Jesus says this though, I will give you rest. Does he say, I'll give you a lecture? Does he say, I'll hold you Arms, like I like, I'll bring you in this far until you get all cleaned up and then and better, then I can bring you in. Does he say, "Hey, uh, first my first cut, I'll take those who have it together, and secondly, if you don't have it together, you can still come." His invitation is not for those who have it together. He said specifically, "I didn't come for those who have it together. I came for the sick. I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because this is how he thinks about himself. Hear this, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is how Paul described Jesus. He said, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God highly exalted him. Jesus is the safe place when we struggle and when we hurt. Jesus is the only person who will always bring you in no matter what. And he's the only one who can offer you help when you are hurting and you are struggling. He's the only one who can help whenever you are sinning. He's the only one who can help. And therefore, the church, our church should be and must be the safe place where people run to when they're struggling. The church, our church Believers, even you individually, we must be the people who connect those who are struggling and hurting to the one source of help. You know what? Because we are struggling and hurting ourselves. James isn't writing this letter to the non-believers who are outside this church. He's writing this letter to the Christians who are in this church. Saying, hey, when are you struggling? Are you hurting? Are you sick? Have you committed sins? Come in. But he doesn't just say, come in. He says, did you hear? He gives an offer of help. It's an invitation for everyone, for all to come in. An open invitation for everyone to come to Jesus, to come in and find him through prayer. And he offers a powerful help for those who do come. Jesus, James says, come in with your struggles. And he says, have people pray for you. And he says, to, for you, to pray for those around you who are hurting and struggling, he says, for us to invite people in to our own sin and our own darkness. That's what he means when he says, confess your sins to one another. It means inviting people into my brokenness and my struggles and my hurts. For what? So that you can be shamed? No, so you could find wholeness. And healing and salvation. Do you know why a lot of us, a lot of you, are consistently and constantly struggling? Struggling in your sin, struggling in your walk with Christ, feeling alone, feeling emotionally broken, feeling physically down. Do you know why so many Christians consistently still live there? Because we don't come to Christ and come to his body openly saying, I need help. And letting the people who are around us pray for us and connect us when we aren't even sure we can find that connection and connect us to the only one who offers us help. It's in prayer that we find God waiting for us. It's in prayer that we find him not just waiting for us but reaching out to us. How does prayer help, help those who are suffering? Well, first of all, it reminds us that we're no longer alone. How often do you feel alone? Like no one can relate to what you are going through. That may be true. Except Jesus does. And whenever you come in and you personally, either you pray to God or you even say, I don't even know if I can pray and approach him. I don't even know if I believe, I don't know where I stand. I don't know even I I feel the motivation when you come in that brokenness, you say, will somebody pray for me? You're reminded even as they physically touch you and pray for you and you hear their words, you, you hear you are not alone. You hear as that person is praying for you in their voice and their touch, you hear and feel the voice and the touch of Jesus saying, you are not alone. I am here. And Jesus says, James says in this passage that those who are suffering, when you pray, he's saying you can find help in your suffering and in your struggles. It may be that God answers a prayer the prayer in such a way that he takes away the source of your struggle and takes away the source of the problem. Or it may be, more often we see even the apostles leading the believers to this, is that even in your suffering and struggle, I pray that God would strengthen you and empower you to make, to make it through it and to have joy in the middle of it. There's the possibility for you to have joy in your suffering and your struggles. But it won't come as you sit alone and try to push your way through it. It comes through leaning into your weakness, opening opening yourself up to Christ directly and through other believers and saying, Hey guys, this is actually fully where I am. This is where I am. I don't even know if God is real anymore. And they pray for you and you find over maybe, maybe in the moment, maybe over time you find a source of power and joy to make it through the suffering itself. What does he promise to those who are sick? He says, come call for the elders of church and they will pray for you and you will be raised up. He promises healing or because we know that not every believer in the New Testament was, was healed. We could go through examples of that. Does that mean that there's never a sick person in our midst? No, but it does mean that sometimes God will heal that person miraculously. But just like bearing through suffering, God will, can give the power and joy in the middle of the pain. But why does he say call for the elders of the church? Well, specifically, we think this means that this was somebody who was so sick that he couldn't even make it to the gathering of believers. And so it says, call for the elder of the church. They will come. The elders will come to you. Those who represent uh, the, the leadership in the church, they will come to you. And they it says, anoint you with oil and the prayer of faith will raise you up. You know, this is such a beautiful picture. That Christ doesn't say, hey, find some way to come to me. Crawl up these steps. Find some sort of holy water at the top of this mountain. He says, Call for the elders and they'll come to you. Such a beautiful picture because Jesus comes to us. And it's a beautiful picture of submission too. I'm not submitting to the, those elders of the church. I'm submitting to Christ saying, God, I'm submitting to you in this moment through these people who are coming to pray for me. I'm submitting to you. And it says, anoint them with oil. Why? It's kind of different, kind of a weird Christian practice, kind of. But oil throughout the Old Testament symbolized the presence of God. And whenever the elders anoint you with oil, it's a picture, it's a tangible picture that God's presence is with you in this moment. The prayer of faith, he says, will raise you up. What he's saying is the spirit will provide the faith and the confidence in those who are praying for you. Notice he even said about sin. He said, that you're, and if you sin, your sins will be forgiven. And he also says, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. What's he saying? Well, there's a, there's a picture that sometimes, not always, there's a connection between physical ailments and sin. Sometimes, but not always. Think about Jesus as he several times where he would heal somebody, he would heal them, or even before he would heal them, he would say, your sins are forgiven, or he would heal them and say, your sins are forgiven. There's a connection there between our sin and our healing, but also the picture that sin itself, even if I'm not physically sick, it's an inner emotional soul sickness. Ever felt that? When you are off doing your own thing, and you know this is not what God has for me. This is not what God has called me to do. I'm breaking his commandments. I'm going against his will. And you just there's a, a, just an inner soul sickness in your heart. James says that Jesus is offering through prayer help for both physical and soul sickness through us praying for each other. But then lastly... He offers an invitation for all to come in. He offers powerful help for those who are suffering, those of us who are suffering, all of us. But then he makes a call for us to participate. James doesn't just say, call for the elders of the church and they will pray for all that you need. He calls for all of us to participate. Therefore, confess your sins to a priest. Is that what it says? Confess your sins to Randy because he's closer to God than anybody else. Confess your sins to the elders because they're holy men. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And this, then he says this, the prayer of a righteous person, the picture there of a righteous person it doesn't mean someone who is like a holy man that we would think of. It means The person who is covered with the righteousness of Jesus, which is every Christian, the prayer, he says, for a righteous person has great power as is working. Do you hear that? Your prayer has great power as it is working. And then he uses this example. The prophet Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. He uses Elijah because there are so many examples of what a weak man Elijah was. He was a depressed man. He, he wanted to give up. He thought he was the only one. He doubted God over and over again we see these examples of how Elijah was just a normal man who dealt with doubts and depression and struggles and yet it says that he was a righteous man whose prayer was worked powerfully and we are just like that he says confess your sins to another if you've wronged someone confess it if your conscience is bowed down if you think there's no way to find forgiveness confess it to a brother or sister he says, "You can be healed of your sins, your conscience cleansed, made whole. It's not by the confession; it's not the act of confessing that we, when we find forgiveness, it is through another person that we find the Father standing with open arms. We find that the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse us." He says, "Pray for one another that you may be healed and made whole." It's an invitation to come in with all of our weakness and to invite the church into our weakness. Why? So that God can enter into our weakness and bring wholeness and healing. That's what makes the church a place to bring our struggles and problems and we find help here and we find the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working. Can you imagine... A church full of Elijah's who did great exploits for God through prayer. Can you imagine a local church where we gathered on Sunday morning in our community groups, in our prayer groups, in women's ministry, in men's ministry, in youth ministry, in college ministry, where people could come in with their struggles, where I could come in with my struggles and my hurt whenever I'm sick, when I'm down, when I'm broken, whenever I feel bowed down under my own guilt of my own sin, I can come in and I can find, you can find, outsiders can find the grace and power of God for those who are suffering and broken in prayer as we pray for each other. Can you imagine what it would look like on Sundays if we all came in together? How would it change our worship? If, you had, if you're busy from out of town, how would it change the worship at your home church if we all came in together on a Sunday saying, I'm coming in and my struggles and I'm going to seek God in prayer, I'm gonna seek others to pray for me so that I can find help and wholeness from Jesus this morning. And I come in and say, I'm coming in this morning to pray for those who are coming in and struggling so that they may find help and wholeness in their struggles, and their sickness. What would we see happen? What would we, how would we see people reunited to God? How would we see the lost come in and find salvation? How would we see those who are sick come in, find healing? What kind of miracles would we hear about in our midst if we actually pray as God is calling us to pray for each other? There's power in corporate prayer. How would it change? How should we view our gatherings as a center for the presence of God? How would that change us? How would it change our evangelism, our families, our workplaces? How would it spill over into our everyday lives if we came on Sundays and our other gatherings together for this to be a place of prayer where I'm coming struggling to find Jesus in prayer and I'm coming to pray for those who are coming and struggling as well? I think it would be beautiful. What does it look like for every believer to come expecting to meet with God. What does it look like for every believer to come prepared to be used by God? So. I just want to ask you this morning as we close. How are you going to put this into practice? How are you going to change the way that you approach Sunday worship or community group or the other gatherings that you're a part of? Even just you meeting with a friend. How are we going to change the way we approach all those things to access the great power of prayer for those of us, all of us who are struggling and hurting. And here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to open the front for communion. There's going to be a station on each side. If you're a believer in Christ, wherever you call church home, we invite you to come and receive. It's the invitation of Jesus. Come and receive his broken body and his shed blood for you. But after we practice communion, we're gonna as we sing our closing songs. uh, Dale and I will be available. We'll be up at the front. If you are sick this morning, we invite you to come. We don't even have to come to your house this morning. You can come, call us, and we will pray for you this morning. And we'll pray that the prayer of faith will raise you up. If you have sins, they'll be forgiven. And if there's any other struggles. Sins that you're struggling with, wrestling with this morning. Come to us. We'd be happy to pray for you or turn around and pray for each other. Let's see if Jesus doesn't meet us this morning and meet you exactly where you are for his glory and our everlasting joy. Oh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' open arms. That's continually bringing us in, calling us in. We thank you that you call in those who are weary and heavy laden. That you call in those who are sick and struggling. And you offer hope and wholeness. Father, we pray that you would help us to not lean away from our weakness, but to lean into our weakness, our struggles, and find help in Jesus through prayer, through each other. And Father, I pray that you would Turn us to a people who live this out. Who on Sundays in our gatherings know the thing that we can offer to people around us is Jesus, and he can tangibly and in reality meet them in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would do these things for your glory in the name of Christ.